please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we resume our series in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25 this morning of the first chapter of 1 Peter. And the title of our sermon this morning is Born to Love. Born to Love. And our sermon series, you see up there, is Living as Suffering Saints for God's Promised Glory. That is the banner, that is the theme over this entire book that we've been going through. We sung even this morning about suffering, we spoke about it. We sung that God build our faith in the midst of trials and, yes, even suffering. All right, First Peter 1, 22 to 25. Before we read, let me just pause this thought. There is nothing sweeter, well, there's not much sweeter in life than getting a do-over. Messing up and getting a second chance. From the earliest of ages, I think this thought of getting a second chance, a do-over, captures our thoughts. For me, it started around the time I received my first Etch-A-Sketch. Now, I'm dating myself here, I realized. Do you know what an Etch-A-Sketch is? One of those magnetic slates, two little knobs on the bottom, one to control the horizontal, another the vertical writing. Well, I love these etch-a-sketches. The reasons why is because I never liked the result of my sketches. But you know what you could do with etch-a-sketch? You just shake it. And what would happen? Presto, a brand new clean slate, a do-over, a second chance. Well, when I got older, my desire for a do-over graduated to the game of golf. Now, for those who are recreational golfers, you know this term. It's called a mulligan. And it works like this. You tee off in the box, and if you're like me, it goes right into the water. Or it dribbles about five feet in front of the tee and stops. What are you doing, golf? I'll take a mulligan, please. What are you doing? You're pretending that you never took that shot or made that shot. You get a do-over. And it doesn't count against your scorecard. Isn't that great? Golf, at the recreational level, is basically institutionalized cheating. I mean, there's no other sport like it. I mean, can you imagine playing golf? Go for a jump shot. You miss the shot. Hey, stop the game. Do over. Missed. Give him the ball right here. Another chance. Never. Never. It's not going to happen. But at golf, you get a do-over. And some guys, they take do-overs every hole. You got to watch them. But what I realized in golf, and like many other second chances in life, is that I needed more than just a do-over. I needed a complete makeover. My golf game, my golf swing, needs a complete overhaul. See, there's something so fundamentally wrong with my golf swing that even if I get a do-over, I'm bound to make the same error over and over again. Mulligan after mulligan. 
So here's the thought this morning for us as we're about to read our text. What if you got a do-over in life, particularly as it relates to your relationships? What if you got a mulligan with that family member, with that once close friend, or with those in the church that you relate to or perhaps are afraid to relate to? And what if you were given such a radical makeover that you could love those very persons sincerely, genuinely, vulnerably for their good with no expectation in return? How would that affect the way you live and the way you love? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ Jesus, You've been given a do-over. But more than that, you've been given a complete makeover from the inside out. And that has everything to do with how we are to live and to love one another this morning. So with that in mind, let's now turn to the text in 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 22. God's word to us. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. In all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do love expository preaching, preaching through your word, verse by verse. For Lord, it is clear this morning that you have set the agenda. Lord, there's something you want us to hear today, March 6th, 2016, from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through to 25. Lord, you have set the agenda this morning through your word. So Father, we desire to hear from you this morning. Would you Address our hearts and may your word come forth with power, with conviction, and with hope this morning. So Lord, do your work by your word through your spirit, we pray right now. Amen. Well, if you've been following with us in this series on 1 Peter, as alluded to earlier, you know that Peter is addressing a people who are undergoing suffering, who are enduring suffering and trials. They are no strangers to suffering. Some are even being persecuted for their very faith. And Peter has addressed their hopes, and now in this text this morning, he's addressing their habits. And the message is clear enough. It's embedded in verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
And that's really the theme for this morning. I'll put it up there. Love one another deeply. Love one another intensely. Love one another fervently. Or as it says in the ESV, which I read, love one another earnestly. That word there, earnestly, the original word behind that literally means to love with a stretched out hand, earnestly, resolutely. No tentativeness to love. A love that's full out, a love that's all in. Yeah, that type of love. This is not a half-baked love. There's no pretend, no pretense. It's for real. Well, why would Peter, addressing those who are suffering, at this point, the very first chapter, give this command? Love one another earnestly. Well, I'm not sure all the reasons why. I surely know that he's been talking about holiness, and surely a mark of holiness is love. But I think something else is going on here, too. When I'm suffering, just when I got over this, just this nasty cough and cold this past couple weeks. By the way, who else is recovering? You know what I'm talking about? This, this chest cold, yeah, it's been going through the church and around. Well, I know at times like that, when I'm suffering physically, I don't want to stretch out my arm and love. I don't even want to be around you. I don't even want to talk to anyone, okay? For me, I just want to suffer in silence. That's me. And I realize that when we suffer, whether it's physically through a cough or a cold or a virus, or not that type of suffering, that suffering can often isolate us from one another, from those that we're called to love. But there's others of you. When you suffer, you want people around. You know why? You want them to hear about your anguish. You want someone to complain to. <laughs> You want them to know how bad it really is. So you want people around. Then there's others of you. It's not so much that you want to complain to others in your suffering, but you want to cast blame. I mean, (laughs) there's just something going on that when we suffer, causes us or tempts us to want to find an explanation to our suffering. And to even cast blame on others for our suffering. You see, in some, suffering can isolate, suffering can agitate, suffering can castigate. And yet, at these very times when we suffer, is when we need each other the most. See, in this passage, Peter is not reminding us, well, he not only of our duty to love one another. Well, he is reminding us of that. But he's telling us that this is the very thing which we, as Christians, were born to do. This love thing, this love earnestly, stretch out the hand kind of love, it's part of your new nature. For all those who place their saving faith in Christ Jesus. You see, our very ability to love is not rooted in the command here in Scripture. It's rooted in in our conversion. See verse 23? Look at it. Since you've been born again. There's the reason why. And that leads to point one. That we're to love earnestly, fervently. Because number one, we've been born again to a radical new life. Well, what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about what makes our obedience to the truth possible. 
By the way, our obedience to the truth there is another way of saying our faith response to the truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes your and my response to the gospel possible? What makes that possible? That we could respond and could have a pure heart and could experience a sincere brotherly love. It's a fact that if we're Christians, we have been born again. Now, I don't know if you use that word much. It was popular, I don't know, maybe back in the 70s. I don't know. Have you been born again? Maybe you've heard that phrase. Or maybe you've said it. I've been born again. Well, it's true. But maybe for you, it still sounds a little odd to say. A little strange to your ears. You know what? It was also strange to a person named Nicodemus in Scripture. Let's turn to John 3. Actually, put it up on the screen. John 3, to hear the story of Nicodemus. Reading from John 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Church, Nicodemus was not stupid. Nicodemus was well taught in Scripture. He was a Pharisee. You see, Nicodemus did not lack eyewitness material on this Jesus. He had seen Christ's supernatural work, but he still didn't get it. What Nicodemus needed was not more instruction. What Nicodemus needed was not to see more signs and wonders. What Nicodemus needed was not an attitude adjustment or merely a moral reformation. Nicodemus needed something which was much more radical than that. Imagine going to the doctor with what looks to you to be an infected bug bite on your leg. So you go to the doctor and say, Doc, can you take a look at this uh, infection here? Uh, maybe you got some topical cream that you could apply to it. Doctor looks at your leg, looks straightforwardly at you. Says, yep, we're going to have to amputate that leg from the hip down. Now at that point, you have no idea what the diagnosis is. But there's one thing you're clear about. This is serious. Much more serious than I had even thought. You see, the good doctor is saying here to Nicodemus, oh, Nicodemus, it's far worse than you think. Your whole body is infected and your heart is failing. The only hope for you, Nico, is this. (laughs) That you'd be born again. Born again? Born again? No, mere human doctor or person 
could possibly perform that miracle. Only Jesus by his spirit. So Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse five of John three, you must be born of water and the spirit. What does that mean? Seems to be a clear reference to the promise of God's exiled people, a promise that was given to the prophet Ezekiel 600 years prior, which by the way, Nicodemus as a teacher of the law should have known to read Ezekiel 36. We'll put it up on the screen so you can look at it. Hear these important words, verse 25 and 26. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your unrighteousness, excuse me, all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Look at verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. To be born again to a radical new life is A, to be given a new heart. In other words, Nicodemus, you need to be born of water. You need to be cleansed of your sin. It's called forgiveness. But you need more than a clean slate. You need more than a second chance. You need more than just a do-over. You need to be born of the Spirit. That is, you need spiritual transformation. For you have inherited the sin of Adam and Eve and are morally unable to do that which is good. To truly love. You need a new heart to replace your heart of stone. A heart that is living. A heart that is responsive. A heart that is able to truly love. So church, it was true for Nicodemus. And so it is for each one of us. We don't just need a clean heart. We need a new heart. Not an improved, spiffed up, old sinful nature. We need the creation of a new human nature. This past week, I was reading a newsletter from a pastor we visited in Turkey. When the team from Paul Vista last summer went to Turkey, we met with a pastor named Tezjan. Imagine being a pastor in a city of three million people, almost exclusively Muslim. Think of Miami-Dade County and having a church of literally several people, maybe those in the front row right here. This one row would compose the entire church. And imagine the joy of seeing not one, but two former Muslim believers come to Christ. Well, Tez John wrote this week and he opens his letter this way. Glory to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is king over all. Two dead people have been raised to life from their sins. And he goes on to share the story of what we'll call Omar. Not his real name. Omar, who cheated his boss in a Ponzi-like money scheme and lived a profligate life of women partying and drunkenness from the money that he stole from his employer. That is, until the day that Omar was found out to be a lie, a cheat, a fraud. And then God brought him 
to a point where he finally said, and here's the quote from the newsletter from himself. Omar needs to die and a new Omar needs to come. Love that phrase. Omar needs to die and a new Omar needs to come. Going on, he says, I knew that I had sinned against God and I asked myself, how can God forgive me? And how can he make me new again? Oh, Omar gets it. I want to put a picture up here, if we can, of Omar. Real person, he and his mother there. A new Omar needed to come. And the Holy Spirit touched this man and his mother. And there's a picture of Tezjon, the day they committed their lives to Christ. You see, church, a new Omar needed to come. A new Nicodemus needed to come. A new Corey needed to come. And that's exactly what happened when we were born again by placing our saving faith in Christ Jesus. We didn't just need a cleansing. Omar didn't need just a cleansing. We needed to be made new by God's spirit that we might truly love. See, to to be born again is to have a new heart that allows us to love one another. But there's even more than this. And this is often a neglected point. To be born again, oh yes, is to receive a new heart. But it's also to receive a new family. B, we are given a new family. When you were born again, you realize you were brought into a completely different family. You were given a new father. You were given, given a new brother and new siblings. Well, it begs the question, who was your father before you came to a living, saving faith in Christ Jesus? Who was the leader of your family? Well, the scripture's clear. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, of whom Nicodemus was one. Jesus speaks these words to the Pharisees who had not yet been born again in John chapter 8. Hear the words, verse 43. Why do you understand? Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Ouch. The church, this isn't just true, you understand, for the Pharisees. Speaking of our former condition prior to new birth, Paul says this about us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you once walked. In other words, you were a zombie. You were a dead man walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. To be born again is to be brought into a new family. You ever wish you were part of another family? Don't, don't raise your hand. You're for my kids especially. Don't raise your hand. All right? 
Well, if that's you and you're a Christian, your wish has come true. You've been given a new father, a new heavenly father. And by his spirit in us, we cry, Abba, Father. We've been adopted into his family. I think we're well taught here. I think most of you would know that. But did you also know we weren't just given a new father? You were given a new brother as well. I want to put the words of Romans 8.29 up there for you. This is a point we can often neglect. Listen to Romans 8.29. For those whom he, that's God, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, speaking of Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's pretty heavy. Okay, let's, let's work on this one. God purposed to bring you into his family and to conform you to the likeness of his son Jesus, who is and is to be your elder brother. Perhaps you don't think of Jesus as your older brother. But unless you do, I propose to you that you will not get the force nor the gravity of this term that we see repeatedly in Scripture, brotherly love. And what it means to love one another fervently as brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of you would know the well-known parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In this famous story of Jesus, you know it, it was the younger brother who left home. He was the prodigal. He squandered his inheritance. He left his family, ending up to live and eat among the pig and the swine, shaming his family. But what is so striking about this story, first of all, it's not only his father. Yes, his father, who graciously, lavishly accepts his lost son as he returns in repentance. That itself is breathtaking, that his father would receive back his lost son, who was once lost, but now found. But what is equally as striking and shocking in the story is the response of the older brother when he hears the news that his younger brother has returned home and his father has killed a fattened calf and throwing a party. What is most stunning is the indignant reaction of the older brother who is having a pity party. He wants nothing to do with his younger brother who has come back. And he certainly is not going to spend his inheritance in celebrating the fact that his prodigal brother had returned. Tim Keller writes the story. Quote, But Jesus does not put a true elder brother in the story. One who is willing to pay any cost to seek and save that which is lost. By putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one. And we have him. 
that kind of brother we need. We need one who does not just go to the next country to find us, but who will come all the way from heaven to earth. We need one who is willing to pay not just a finite amount of money, but at the infinite cost of his own life to bring us into God's family. For our debt is so much greater. Our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross in our place. Friends, do you see? We were that prodigal son in the story. But you, if you're born again, have a true elder brother. And his name is Jesus. Sometimes we can hear this term, brotherly love. And I'm afraid we can cheapen this love in our own minds. We can read a brotherly love and think about it. Just a matter of, hey, bro, how's it going, man? Love you, bro. Nothing wrong with that. There's a little more to it than that. Or perhaps even worse, when you hear the term brotherly love, you maybe just think of your own, your own brother. Yeah, my brother, you know, he's part of the family. Gotta love him. He irritates the fire out of me. But you know what? I gotta live with him. That's not the type of brotherly love that is being spoken about here. What we're talking about here is a precious familial love bought by the blood of Jesus, your true older brother, that leads us to love, agape love, all out, earnestly love one another. That word translated earnestly, back in verse 22, verse 23 is used only two other times in the New Testament. And both times it refers to prayers, one of which is the prayer of Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was going to go to the cross. We read this about Jesus in Luke 22, verse 44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. There's that word, prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. How earnestly did Jesus pray? So much so that he sweat blood and was willing to suffer. Yes, sacrifice his very life to do the will of the Father and to save his brothers. It's no wonder that the Apostle John, who was there that night in the garden, who was there at the foot of the cross when Christ was crucified, wrote these words, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this, we know, love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And you could add sisters as well. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? This brotherly love, which we are speaking about. Oh yes, it's spiritual affection and pursuit of your brother or sister. But it's also a willingness to meet the real and costly physical needs of our brothers and sisters 
in Christ. And I know many of you have demonstrated just that with those in our own church who have been needy. I've seen that firsthand. You have been an example. That is true, brotherly and sisterly love. But perhaps you are here this morning and you've, you've experienced real, authentic, spiritual rebirth. You're a Christian, but you have this thought. You sometimes wonder, is this Christian thing, is this love, is it going to stick? You know, it's like, it's kind of like going through cancer. And imagine being miraculously healed and getting a clean bill of health. But then there's still that lingering question. Will the cancer return? Is the cancer truly gone? Or has it just gone into remission? I mean, most days you feel good, pretty energetic. God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And you feel love. But then you have those days of fatigue, of weakness. They return. You just don't feel like stretching out your hand to your brother and sister of loving fervently. And you wonder, just wonder, is this for real? Well, if that's you, please look at verse 23. The second half of this verse. And hear the good news. Verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We are born again, in point two, through the word to eternal life. If you've been born again, you've been born again to the living, through the abiding, through the remaining word of God. What is this word being referred to here? It's spelled out for us. Look at verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, you've been born again through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, your older brother. It's the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's this gospel which awakens our faith and gives us new life from the dead. Romans 10, 17, we'll put it up there for you, says this. So faith comes from hearing. From hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. That's how God activates our faith. Through hearing the gospel. And this gospel being referred to is called a seed. It's an imperishable one. It has the power not just to generate life, but to sustain life as well, forevermore. And this is in contrast to our situation prior to being born again. Prior to being born again, you and I will perish in our sin apart from Christ because we're born a perishable, sin-tainted, sin-tainted glory-fading seed. And to make this point, Peter quotes, as a proof text, Isaiah 40. And that quote is found, probably indented in your Bible, in verse 24. We read, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. See, what's happening is this. Peter is contrasting the first birth of man, 
comparing his life, your life, to that of a withering grass or fading, dying flower. He's contrasting our initial birth in sin with our second birth, our spiritual rebirth that will not fade and will not fail and lead to glory. If you're born again, we will never die and be separated from our Savior or our true family. The heart transplant that you received, it's going to take. And that cancer that you once had will not metastasize and consume you, even though our bodies may fail. And since the seed of the gospel is imperishable, it will not only sustain you, but it'll do what seeds do. What do seeds do? They germinate. They grow and mature that you and I may be all that God intended for us to be. I want to grow in loving you, brothers and sisters. I want to know what it means when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, regarding brotherly love, to do this more and more. See the growth there? More and more. I want to know what it means in Romans 12.10 to love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I feel so lousy at this at times. There's probably no prayer that I pray more than Romans 12.10 as I see my deficiencies. Oh, Lord, give me that brotherly affection. Give me that zeal for you that translates into a zeal and a love for one another. But church, even if you do not feel like you are doing a very good job, there is hope that God is growing you because he has birthed you with an imperishable seed of the gospel. There is hope. And First Peter gives us that hope. Perhaps you feel like you have left, you have let others down. I know I have. Perhaps you feel like you've been consumed by your own suffering and trials. So consumed that you really haven't even noticed others and their very needs around you. And as a result of the trial of the hurt, you have not allowed your heart to be engaged or concerned with the suffering of brothers and sisters here let alone from afar. You find yourself unmoved by the needs, even when you hear them, whether it be those around you or even like needs that we heard last week, the church in Nicaragua. You're not moved. You're not stirred. Maybe you found yourself closing your hearts to your brothers and your sisters or even your leaders in your own suffering. Listen to Paul's words to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. Don't turn there, just here. I wonder if these words are for some of you this morning. Paul speaking to the church. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. But you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. 
widen your hearts also. Maybe some of you here need to widen your hearts also. Widen your hearts to those brothers and sisters of Christ in a different church who are of a different race or a different socioeconomic background. I believe God wants to do just that, that he wants to grow that love in us. What will it mean for you to widen your heart? If you're like me, make it simple. Maybe there's a person that comes to mind right now that God is calling you to befriend, to engage, to help. Maybe you have many thoughts, but just choose one, one person. Maybe it's one ministry that's reaching out to the least of these, brothers and sisters in need, that God is asking you to participate in, to serve with. Who is that person? What is that ministry? Just one. And what's the one action you can take this week, however small, to say, I love you. And I'm putting my feet in my hand where I want my heart to be. Because I know that God has birthed me a new love. It's not my love. I can't manufacture it. I don't even know how to do that. But I know that he's working it in me. I'm confident of that. And I'm going to step forth in love. It may not be much. It may not be flashy. But it's what I know to do. Would you write that down? Would you capture that thought? And take action this week. What will it mean to love one another earnestly? To literally stretch out your hand in service and in friendship. God is no tease. You can do it. If you're born again, you can do it. You have been born again to a brother they love. You've not just been given a do-over. Yes, you have a second chance, but you've been given a radical makeover as well. You've been born again because of the glorious gospel, because your true elder brother didn't just stretch out one hand, but two upon the cross, surrendering to cruel nails that you may be born again to love. What will you do, church? Let's pray. Let's have the worship team come up to sing one final song, the first song that we sang this morning. Let us pray. Okay. Let's pray, church. Well, dear Lord, there's nothing that you ask of us as your children. There's nothing that you command of us that you do not empower us to do. So thank you that you're not asking us to do something this morning that we're incapable of doing. Oh, we may feel like that at times. I get that. I feel that regularly. But Lord, thank you that the command you've given us to love one another is not rooted in the command itself. The command itself, the law cannot generate life nor obedience. But your command is rooted in our conversion, the reality that we have been born again 
given a second chance, but born again with a new heart, a heart of love that comes from you and you alone. So Lord, we want to walk this week in the love that you have birthed in our hearts. And we want to demonstrate this love as we exercise it among our brothers and sisters that the world may know, O Christ, of you by our love for one another, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us stand. Let us conclude with song.